2: What is up, everybody? My name is James D. Fiori, and this is Bald. My guest tonight, I don't even know where to begin <laughs> because she has one of the most remarkable bios that I've ever seen from a Canadian public figure. She's an author. She's a former NDP MPP for Parkdale, which is my old writing, and I did used to see her around all the time, kind of intermingling with the community. She was really accessible like that, and I really enjoyed that. And she is also... The author of this book is called The Queer Evangelist. And I would like to start this program by reading the following. Kids, kids, everywhere. The cops on horseback had broken up the anti-Vietnam War rally. I remember a lawyer saying, get their badge numbers to no avail. And the demonstrators streamed into the downtown core. The anarchists, mostly kids, started smashing store windows. The Maoists, kids too, we waving the red book and shouting running dogs of the U.S. imperialism. This completely astounded Saturday shoppers who thought the Maoists were referring to the kids running up the street. That's when someone started yelling, it's the revolution. Instead, and perhaps regrettably, it was just a bunch of us socialist, hippie, peacenik, anarchist street kids. We were a tiny minority at the time in a vast capitalist state. I was a cynic. The Vietnam, the Vietnam War was an abomination, no doubt, but the kids I hung out with in the street, drug trade, never believed for a moment the adult world would change. Not really. We all wanted to be William Burroughs or Jimi Hendrix or Janis Joplin. We assumed we would die young. It was far more romantic and more likely than revolution. Please welcome my guest today, Miss Sherry DeNovo. Sherry. Yes, a pleasure.
1: I'm good. I'm good. I'm very good.
2: What a landscape you paint with that 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 you you can almost smell it Do you know what I'm saying like there's there's a way that you know I I, I've often romanticized I was born in 1976 and Christy Blatchford of all people used to tell me that I was born two decades late because I used to romanticize journalism from back in the day Mm -hmm. um where were you born
1: Toronto astoundingly enough I'm one of the few born and bred Torontonians I was born at St. Joe's Hospital it's not far from where I live now and uh, yeah, and I've only ever lived in New York for a couple of years other than here. I've traveled a lot, but um, but yeah, this is my hometown.
2: You've been political, though, your whole life, it seems.
1: Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, I've always been an activist. I never, ever aspired to run for political office. Uh, that kind of happened at me rather than mm-hmm. through me. Um, you know, the NDP came, came a calling and asked if I would consider running for them. I still had to fight a nomination battle, but uh, that was after I performed the first legalized same-sex marriage. So there was a lot of press about that. My church was Mm -hmm. doing well. It was on Roncesvalles, which was in the middle of the riding that they wanted me to run for in the West End of Toronto. And uh, yeah, so they figured I could win, and I guess they were right.
2: Those were the two Michaels, right? Michael uh, Lershner, Michael Scott, I think, or something like that. This is from memory, so I'm all... No, no, no.
1: Um, uh, no, not at all. No, the two Michaels came much later. That came after the law had changed. Oh, okay. uh, This was two, and I, I, you know, I mean, it's... I, I'm going to sound all feminist now, but, you know, I, watching history be rewritten in, in real time with, with the men, you know, figuring in for where the women should be. Mm. But, um, yeah, no, as was I, a woman, married two women of color, Paula and Blanco were their names. Uh, One was from Colombia, one from Venezuela. They came to ask me to marry them, and uh, our church board um, very bravely backed me up on this. Uh, And uh, it was still illegal. So I married them using a system called uh, the bans, which you could do instead of going to City Hall and getting a license. You can read it out. You can still use that. Churches can read or faith institutions can read out uh, two weeks in a row. On the band's form, there was no place for male or female. It just said bride and groom. So we just filled it all out oh, and wow. and uh, sent it in to Thunder Bay, the registrar's office, which is what you would do with a city license too, and got back a marriage certificate. And wow. then, of course, you know, proverbial stuff hit the pr- proverbial fan and, it, you know, went everywhere. Uh, and they threatened to take away my license at the provincial level, um the church general did not back up my congregation nor me and uh so got a good lawyer phoned the cbc got lots of press and by the time they by the time anything happened on that file within the year it had been made legal de facto the, oh, the supreme okay. court of ontario had ruled that not having equal marriage was against uh, the charter of rights and freedoms Um, And then it became legal shortly thereafter. So the marriage held, bottom line, you know, it never went anywhere. And so that was the first legalized marriage in Canada. And um, I keep uh, explaining this over and over and over. But (laughs) I'm sorry, I knew I'd be educated. I knew I'd be educated
2: in this podcast a little bit.
1: It's (laughs) actually okay, but it is really interesting when you're as old as I am, you know, to see history being rewritten. Um, especially when you were there, you know, when you actually were part of it. Uh, and, uh, yeah. So anyway, that's, uh, that's
2: the fact. Okay. Um, I do want to go back though, because uh, when you say that you were a street kid, can you tell me what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I left home. I mean, a lot of queer kids did because, you know, it wasn't particularly queer friendly back in the day. And I came from a, a very dysfunctional home, very violent, uh, very, very sort of eruptions of violence. I I witnessed my, quote-unquote, uncle, who was really um, my stepfather, uh, kill himself. Um, I found the body when I was a kid. Uh, I saw lots of other scenes, not quite as dramatic as that, but it, it was not a safe place, bottom line. It was not a safe place for a variety of reasons, and the street was safer, and that's why most kids that I know hit the streets, uh, we went, and in those days, you could actually, on social assistance, rent a room and continue schooling, because you could live on social assistance, not so anymore. Um, But that's why I left. And and all the kids that I met, we hung around Yorkville, you know, and we slept on couches, we slept in the park, we crashed in, in anywhere we could. And, um, and that's how we got by and we were, you know, involved, most of us, I, I would say almost all of us in the drug trade in some way, shape or form, because what are you going to do to make money at 15? I mean, the choices for a woman, um, other than yeah. being involved in drugs were not appealing to me. So, um, yeah, so I sold LSD. That's what I did. Imported it, there and were, sold it.
2: They were powered by numbers back then. If you were living on the street as a kid, wasn't there? Like, it was almost like, like I had talked to somebody who I used to live beside, um it was a couple actually they met when they were both uh 13 and it was like the late mid to late 70s and that's how they met and they met because the the um there was a there was there was some guy that would had been roaming around the area near St Lawrence Market and there was was kind of uh victimize or trying to victimize kids or whatever and so these these kids would hang out in groups of like 3 to 7 or something like that like a total kids and and that's how they survived
1: Absolutely. We hung out. And some of those kids are still good friends of mine, kind of scattered around the globe right now. But uh, the ones that didn't die, pretty high death rate. Uh, But um, the ones that survived, thrived, really did very well. I mean, one started the Vancouver Folk Festival very active in the music scene out there. Um, another one is became a dancer with the Alvin Eiley Ballet in New York, a um, girlfriend of mine, and still lives in New York, see her quite frequently. So, I mean, yeah, the ones that survived thrived, and then there were a number that did not.
2: Hmm. So selling LSD. So I remember when I was young, LSD was five bucks a hit, and it just yeah. kind of stayed like that forever. Um, yeah. it was the when most- I was ed- young too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's what i'm saying yeah and and there was um i i don't want to sit i don't want to make it seem like i'm promoting psychedelics or whatever mm-hmm. but did uh, did you ever use any oh of course because you know okay <laughs> of course are, you, are yeah. you like me um where it's like listen like i don't i, I don't want to encourage anyone to go out there and just do lsd all the time but there are certain drugs that i have done in my life um and i'm a pretty open book about this stuff that leaves a residue. Uh, where where it opens sort of a window when you do it. And then when you're sober again, that window kind of stayed open. Um, and for LSD, it was a way to strip myself of my ego and look inward and not feel ashamed, but just sort of take note and try to figure out how to build a better me. Absolutely. Does that make any
1: sense to you? Absolutely. In fact, um, it was not illegal when I sold it. It was under the Food and Drug Act. So it wasn't legal, but it wasn't considered criminal. The criminalization came much later. And we used to import it. I imported it. My first introduction to the Bible was importing LSD in it, hollowed out Bibles from California. And some of the original tablets had... um, you know, first of all, they had tablet making machines, so pretty mm-hmm. slick. um, but we're we're Sandoz. We're coming from literal laboratories because we forget that there was a lot of ex- a lot of experimentation and research using LSD, which by the way, is kicking in again, which is yes. kind of interesting. So for exciting. use, yeah, for use with people with mental health issues. so um so, and we would divide each one of those tablets. that's how powerful they were for, and sell each. For five dollars each so yeah. it was still five dollars back then hasn't changed much um but yeah i mean i i i've talked to many people who've said that they would never have for example, entertain the idea of faith of any sort had mm. they not done LSD. Because it does teach you that what you think is common sense isn't so common and sometimes isn't very sensible, right? That, you know, you, you, you see that just with this little tablet in your system, the world shifts in a dramatic way. And, uh, and, and so there it is. Uh, I don't recommend it either. I haven't done it in decades, and I don't think I ever will again. No, because um, it, it's it, to me, and back then it was pretty powerful, and we did a lot of it. Um, because of course we were involved it, with it and pot, and, you know it was mainly soft drugs in around the Yorkville area in Toronto. I mean, for the hard drugs you had to go kind of downtown. But um, but I started developing a stutter from LSD. I mean, it's, oh. it it does have, and I've I knew a number of people, and I've dealt with a number of street people since where. It it really did uh, you know turn a switch somehow and um, invoke a you know an episode of schizophrenia or they mm-hmm. you know I knew many kids who ended up at what was then 999 Queen Street now Cam H um, or arrested and some who died not classically jumping off buildings or anything but just because it it can mess you up it can mess you up and I saw that
2: yeah I think. Um the whole everything in moderation thing really applies to psychedelics because first of all, you have to double up if you're going to take it like within days of it, of the, of taking it the first time. Um, but just to like, just like I, I did, uh, I still do it from time to time. I did it a few years ago, a friend of mine. Um, but it's the same. It's that's why. Went, okay. So I'm I'm going to let people know that, uh, you may have seen me, um, co-host the Dean Blundell show when Sherry was on. And, uh, we sort of touched on this a little bit and it was one of the several reasons why I wanted to have you on today. But um, you know, it, I it was a person that I know who who got it shipped here from Stanford, who knew the chemist who who makes it still. And when I got it in the mail, I got I got three um, blotters or whatever, and uh, they were you know the, with the perforated, and they were still together. And uh, I just cut the whole thing in half and did a hit and a half. And I sit down, and I, this is like three years ago, I think. And uh, I, I I go online, and she's there, and she's like, "Oh, did it come yet?" Because she mailed it to me, and I'm like, "Yeah, I did." She's like, "Okay." Before you take it, just let me tell you. Like, just take a half. Just like you're gonna just like. And I was like, oh shit. <laughs> and and it was and it was weird because um, the doing a, a drug like that when you're a kid versus doing it when you're over forty years old or whatever, it's almost a it's almost like either doing it for the first time or a completely different experience. Mm. And I, I was I was kind of impressed at how you know at at how the drug hadn't really changed in a lot of ways but since I had the experience was different and it made me reflect on being a good father and all this kind of stuff like I don't think people understand a lot of people don't want to do these drugs so they can party they want to do these drugs so they can like meditate Mm -hmm. and think and do things like that And I think the psilocybin research that I think you touched on a little bit on Mm -hmm. the show is, is going to be super important for people with PTSD and with people uh, who are suffering from depression. And uh, is it is a big pharma that has stopped that progress like because they haven't learned how to synthesize it? Like, what do you think the reason? I think it's more
1: the war on drugs insanity that has plagued, you know, the West for so long. I, I, I hope that's beginning to lift. We look at examples in Portugal and others where jurisdictions have you know, stopped being idiots about this. Um, but, yeah, I think it, it was just part of the war on drugs, which just, you know, got kicked in and never really left us. Even despite you know the fact that everybody knows that it does not work, uh, they're still doing it, right? They're still doing it. So, so again, is there money behind it? Probably, but I I think honestly, uh, big farm would probably just be as happy to make money from it as yeah. to you know counter it. Uh, so I, I don't think we can blame them for this one. We can blame them for lots of other stuff, but I don't think cool. that for this one. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I I, I uh, honestly. Um, I'm very glad. I mean, some of the peak experiences I think I've had in my life were on LSD, because for that very reason that you describe is that, you know, it really does just, you know, open up everything. Um, For me, I mean, I discovered what I really liked about LSD was just staying up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah <right? laughs> was just yeah. being up all the time and being you know having that energy so I moved from LSD to methadrin which was not a good move um mm. but you know I certainly enjoyed that more I didn't have to hallucinate anymore you know all those pesky hallucinations like you know I could just be up and beyond and have to eat didn't have to sleep and so that finally ended my little foray into drugs because I say as I described in the book I passed out on Blur Street or almost passed out and thought eh, okay maybe the universe is telling me that i should stop doing this and i realized i hadn't eaten in days and got a chicken sandwich and changed my life you know
2: yeah no exactly i mean um so what were you doing then in the 80s and 90s like take me through what it was like sure (laughs) sure
1: so i got off off the streets thanks to a government that by the way conservatives federally, provincially, municipally, which I constantly remind uh, conservatives about, who actually taxed enough and paid enough. So uh, social insurance, like welfare, was something you could live on. So thanks to that, I got myself back, at a high school equivalent at a community college and then went to university, went to York. Um, when I finished York, I got a job. I needed a job. Um, uh, I had a partner then and, and got pregnant not too long after <clears throat> with my first child um and i got into the personnel business headhunting business affectionately called and discovered that the same skills i used in sales both as a young (laughs) socialist selling the newspaper and as a you know as someone on the streets in the drug trade worked just as well you know legally in fact um in fact better so um so yeah so I, i worked for a number of companies and then went out on my own i kind of time tested routine took my most of my clients with me started my own firm and um and so the the mid 80s really um i realized all my material dreams i with a five thousand dollar investment i was building half a million dollars um the first year and so had the big house in the suburbs with a swimming pool and the mercedes and you know um then went and invested in a box at what was then skydome now the Rogers center oh wow and 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 leased that out to client companies um, and then the recession of the '90s, early '90s hit. So, and it was an all-woman firm. Uh, all the pe- women that were, the people that worked for me were women, and we did very well. Um, uh, but uh, things shifted quite dramatically in the early '90s with that recession that people may not remember. But it was, it you know, for us it felt equivalent to 2008. Um, hmm. Probably not as dramatic for most people, but certainly in the business world on Bay Street which is uh, a university, which is where our offices were, it was dramatic. And um, so I, I, and I see that as a blessing in retrospect, because I would probably never have stopped doing that. I always thought that, you know, if a job came across my desk because we were headhunters that I like better than running my own company, that I would go for it. So when I walked into church for a whole bunch of wrong reasons, I'm sure, and I saw um, then the minister, uh, Ken Gallinger, great guy, still a friend, but retired. Um, I thought his job is better than mine, pays way worse, but <laughs> better than mine. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I one of the reasons I walked in was like my moods were dependent on my billings. And this yeah. this I think will speak to a lot of people that are in business. Um have nothing but respect for entrepreneurs. I worked with many of them, but I mean I had employees to look after and a family to look after. And you know, if the buildings were great, my mood was great. If the buildings weren't, I wasn't happy. Yeah. And I thought this is no way to live. This is there's something very skewed in this. And then the early nineties recession happened, and you know, I thought, well, now I'm going to have to do something else. Either go up back into sales, twice as many clients for half as much business, kind of thing, or or here's an opportunity to do something different.
2: It's interesting because I know a lot of people that um, come from the streets or or had rough goings, you know. But street smarts, if you can if you can find a way to to get out of a rut, and you have street smarts, that's really just. People skills, right? Like, like you know, selling LSD from a Bible uh, in New Yorkville outside of the Pilot or whatever is probably this a similar thing to telling people that they should probably hire this person because they're really good for the job? Like, it's almost the same thing. You're just the <laughs> sales, is of sales is sales
1: is yeah. sales, you know. Yeah. Marketing is marketing. Where whatever industry you're in, talking about the Pilot, that was the first place that I ever had a drink. I think I was I I walked in there when I was like 15, and I trust me, I look like I was 10 like i look at pictures i look like i mean you and still no look like are like 37 no questions <laughs> no id you know yeah. just served it up you know that was the pilot you know the pilot looked then and is now almost identical to what it is now I
2: like know. it's
1: crazy some places never change you know they swept the floor that's the difference but the
2: history of that place like i always got an education on uh, the history of that place whenever i went there like in the early 2000s or whatever because uh you know, I lived, I lived close by, I lived in the annex and um, yeah, it was just, you know, it, 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 that's where all the journalists used to go. Isn't it like when back in the day? Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. And draft dodgers, draft resistors, I should say. And mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of Americans kind of made it their office that came up across the border then and stayed. Uh, yeah. It was the home of a lot of kind of people that didn't have another home. Yeah. Um, so I had a lot of artists and uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was quite the place and you know, what was the band name? I can't remember, but they were like a yeah Southern music band, uh, kind of almost Dixieland stuff that played there every Saturday. And I think like they only stopped playing probably a few years back. I mean, they were oh, like well. must have been there in 90s <laughs> because they were playing. <laughs> like it was very, very weird, you know, but it, but yeah, it's definitely a Toronto institution for sure.
2: Was music a big part of your life? Like, did you go and see live music a lot or?
1: Um, It was a part of, yeah, I mean, I, I think. You know, this is this is an age thing. For any age, I mean, I mean, music when you're young is kind of your lifeblood, like you live it, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever the music is of your generation, and so we were no different, of course. Um, I remember having tickets to see the Rolling Stones when they came to play at Varsity Stadium, wow. um, yeah, and I, I I saw them later, much later, in a box at the Sky Dome, I think, but um, <laughs> but I sold them. Like I was never big. I never, you know, I didn't go to Woodstock. Like it sounded like. Remember, I was a cynical kid. I was a drug mm. dealer. Like I wasn't real. I never considered myself a hippie. Like that, that whole kind of, you know, thing. Just kind of, I, I just didn't buy it. I didn't buy any of it back then. I still don't. <laughs> um, uh, I just thought it was very naive. And and as the passage you read indicates, uh, it wasn't. It wasn't me, and it wasn't the people that I hung out with. You know, that no. uh, wasn't us.
2: The varsity arena show wasn't that the one where Keith Richards got busted for heroin. Um, I think
1: it was a little bit before that, but um, again, I didn't make it. I sold my tickets, which was silly. Right. I should have gone. <laughs> but um, you're a good salesperson. Anyway, yeah. You know, yeah.
2: You can't, you can't help that. <laughs> okay, and then politics. When did when did you get the tap? You, you, the way you describe mm-hmm. it, because you know, like you can't apply for a job at the CIA. They have to find you and tap you on the shoulder. So it was sort of like that, I guess. Eh?
1: It was. It's not always like that, but it was for me. I, I've always been an uh, activist, but after I did that first legalized marriage, um, a lot of press, the church had gone from clo- about to close in two years. We had, you know, a full house, like probably 800 to 1,000 people on a Christmas Eve. So, so, So basically, a political party looks at that and says, well, she's got this little base, you know, and clearly got the press. She's so she's a good candidate. And the NDP at that point had only 10 members at uh, Queen's Park. In fact, they had nine. I think I became the 10th when I won, but it was a grueling campaign. I mean, had I known what it was, was like, I probably would have said no, but as it was, uh, it took me a a few months to say yes. Um, And, and and I got some great advice. I I, I talk about this in the book, but you know, one, One uh, person in the congregation said, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't wish that job on my worst enemy, but I think you should go for it, Sherry. You know, so that was one (laughs) one piece of advice. And the other one, which I also liked equally, was uh, being asked to run for political parties, like being asked to the high school prom by the quarterback. You know, sounds very flattering, but when you get there, you have to spend the evening with a football player, So, both of which were pretty prescient. I think they were both pretty accurate. So anyway, but there was a grueling campaign. Of course, they brought up my drug dealing, which was never I never hit it. I used to preach about it because a lot of the people in my church were people off the street with mental health and addiction issues. So they saw it as a story of hope. But of course it was used against me. Um, Everything I ever wrote, I had one book out there called Queering Evangelism. That was my doctoral thesis that came out of California and had won an award in Washington. And that um, they quoted, you know, lifted lines out of context from that. And, you know, it was just really, really grueling. And, And the worst part of it, well, two of the worst parts of it were my kids had to live through that. Um, yeah. and other people who have run for political office will know this. Um, and and second of all, uh, the people that were in my congregation who were still street involved thought, well, this is, you know, it's hopeless, I'm stuck, right? Because if, you know, it, they can come after her, they can come after anyone, right? It's one of those.
2: Was it Alexa Madonna that was the uh, leader at the time?
1: Um, who federally, um, just trying to think federally who it was, could have oh, been, it yeah, it could have been. I mean, provincially no, provincially, no, provincially, I was provincial. Provincially, okay. was Howard Hampton, who uh, right. the press always That's called right. Howard Who. <laughs> but nobody knew who we were. Um, and so when I, when I got there, and I started getting, I got a lot of press before I got there, and then I got a lot of press after, because the first bill that I introduced was a $10 minimum wage at a time when it was $8, and that got a lot of support across the province, and then I kept getting bills turning into laws. So I tended to get a lot of press, um, and, which was unusual for the little party at that at that time. Some of whom are
2: still there, interesting Did you ever think of running for leader? Yeah, I did actually. I
1: threw. Um, I, I I I didn't. I don't think I ran seriously for leader of the federal party, but I, I did want to get my, uh, my views out there. So I did run, but then sadly I had a health issue I had a like TIA small stroke and possibly two. Um, and I thought, nah, you know, I'm not going to do this. So it was, it was really funny because I was, I was on the phone trying to talk to um, Abby Lewis at the time. I was trying to convince him to run. He said, Sherry, you must be the only person that, like, is is running for a political position trying to convince somebody else to run instead of you. I said, yeah, "Yeah, well, you know, um, there it is. Uh, Sadly, he didn't, but...
2: Yeah, him, I I mean, him or Naomi Klein would be pretty good, I think.
1: They would be great, yeah.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Well, something happened. Sorry, I'm just thinking of it now. But there was a member... There was like a convention, NDP convention. What was it like six, seven years ago or something? And um, that's when the manifesto came out, and they got a lot of bad press for calling it the manifesto because people thought it was going to be like communist or whatever. But um, mm-hmm. and and I was told by some insider back back in the day that uh, that the party was kind of split between pragmatists and uh, and radicals and none of the radicals wanted avi lewis but the pragmatists did and i i, I never really was able to confirm it no i i or... don't
1: think that's true i think i've always been on the left wing of the of the ndp personally and um my concern my concern with the party and this is you know completely evident in bc right now but my concern with the party always was that they hate, you know, there's this kind of spiritual law that you become what you hate. They hated liberals so much they were becoming them. (laughs) So it was very difficult to tell the difference. You know, the liberals would run left, run, you know, then govern to the right. But I mean, often the liberal campaigns sounded to the left of the NDP, which happened with Trudeau, right, and Mulcair, Mm. which is why we lost, because we blew it. So, I mean, that, that, uh, and I think there's a whole bit of the party which was trying to become professional, quotes, unquotes and uh, And you know, hired consultants and did focus groups and all of that stuff. and that's that's not the heart of the party. The heart of the party is an alternative to all that so um bit by bit i don't know I'm, I'm 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 feeling very very happy about what's happening provincially right now which is that mart styles who uh, i just interviewed on my show um is is going to be the new leader and i really like mart and i think the reason some of the reasons i didn't run again uh, are gone now um, from queens park and the ndp so i i'm po- very positive about the future of the provincial party for sure so we'll see we'll see
2: yeah, the NDP is it difficult to, in party politics, to convince a large enough swath of the population to vote for you if if you're kind of self-branded as, like you know, staunchly left or staunchly right? Like it, that's a difficult road, isn't it? Is isn't the genius of the concept? And I'm just saying the concept mm-hmm. of the Liberal Party the fact that they can put themselves in between those two groups on either side of the political spectrum and say we're more reasonable, isn't isn't there sort of a an intelligent strategy in that to be able well, to secure more votes?
1: One could argue that in the past. I think that argument just falls flat right now. What mm-hmm. we're seeing globally and what we're seeing in North America very clearly, I think, um, is that the center is dropping out is that we're becoming much more bifurcated. Um, this has to do with kind of the, I, I think, you know, the the softening of, of people's interest in mainstream media and, you know, listening to shows like yours and others and uh, being on social media, right? <laughs> yeah. um, so we're, we're all down our own rabbit holes in our own echo chambers, which you can argue with and say, it's, that's terrible. We don't talk to each other. And I would agree. We do not talk to each other enough across the chasm, but the reality is um, we're left or right now. Um, and certainly if you're on social media for any length of time, you kind of see that. Uh, mm. uh, and whatever we may think of it, uh, the center isn't holding. It's not holding anywhere in the world. We're seeing the same thing happen. In France, for example, Macron, um, who could be argued was a centrist, you know, kind of liberal, you know, barely squeaked a win. And who really increased their vote share were left and right. Um, We're seeing that uh, in the States because there's only the two parties difficult to gauge, but what you're certainly seeing is the rise of the right um, there and, and with Trump, et cetera. And I just saw polling for the midterms, which looks scary. So um, you never know. So, so again, um, I, I think, and I think this is, this is, comes from a genuine place in people too, not just, you know, where they get their, their information, but you know, people are really hurting. I mean, in my parents' day, you could own a house in Toronto on one salary and have yeah. a car in the driveway. And you know, for a lot of middle class, you could have a cottage too, maybe shared it with some relatives, right? Uh, now you can't even own two salaries in the yeah. city of Toronto and you're gonna have a mortgage forever and it's gonna be ridiculous this is the new reality and and the the actual wages have gone from middle class to lower class have gone down 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 whereas the billionaires are getting richer and richer and richer so we're seeing this huge divide and that is reflected politically it's reflected in those who either side with the billionaires or those who side with you know the person that's struggling to get by um, and you know, barely able to pay their rent. So, I mean, this is the spectrum that the two sides reflect, and I think that's reasonable.
2: How much of that, uh the weight uh, or the the wealth gap, and you know, and and the the sort of polarization, largely due to, I would say, the wealth gap. Like, like I was priced out of Toronto. Uh, my now ex wife and my and my two kids. I mean we were making what we thought was decent uh combined living and and it wasn't enough it, it would be more than enough in anywhere else but but Toronto was just that bad how much of all that is the cause the unintentional consequence of um I don't want to use the word globalization then because uh, that's what staunch right wingers use but like free trade the idea of our manufacturing being moved overseas And factories in places where they may have uplifted some people out of poverty, but just barely because they're still only getting a few bucks a day. Like how much of it has to do with that?
1: Well, absolutely. And I would say, I mean, we think about it very differently. I don't think of it as a global conspiracy as some do, but but certainly uh, multinational companies now have way more power than governments. So, um, you know, you, you don't like what they're doing in your jurisdiction, they pick up the choice and leave, and they go somewhere else where it's cheaper and the labor's cheaper. We see this happening all the time. And that has consequences. Uh, and, you know, the, we're all so poor, we have to shop at Walmart. Well, guess what? It's Walmart that's making us so poor, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, it's sort of this is the 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 terrible treadmill that a lot of people are on and economies are on and we don't have you know and sadly politicians are funded by these same people i mean whether you're a democrat or republican in the states your money comes from wall street <laughs> it yeah. just it depends you know you know what you know you know what billionaires backing who so if if you've got an oligarchy with billionaires running everything wherever you are you know where where's the democracy there where is where is the any kind of freedom that we would normally sort of up, want to uphold so um what what it takes is is really serious political backbone and that's what we don't see a lot of right
2: yeah we don't um and and it's also confusing for a lot of people i consider myself fairly politically inclined but <clears throat> when it comes to geopolitics uh, especially the economics of geopolitics i'm i'm a deer in headlights i i don't understand I guess I could I can conceptualize, but I don't fully understand why the war between Russia and Ukraine is 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 making my cost of living go up. Well, actually,
1: what's making your cost of living go up and um, and (laughs) it's called greedflation hashtag. It's, you know, price gouging, you know, when grocery prices go through the roof. And yet, you know, all of our big grocery chains are making record profits and paying record bonuses. Why are our prices going up? Well, because yeah. they can and they're doing. It's price gouging. Gas the same. Guess what? You know, the you know, the the Souths aren't suffering, you know. I mean, um the, the, the biggest, you know, gas companies are making record profits, they're paying record bonuses. Um, this is price gouging. Most of the billionaires got way, way richer during COVID, whereas most people got poorer. Um, so this is the simple reality in which we live. And um, and the only people that have a chance and kind of standing up to this are governments. And, you know, they're, most of those political parties are taking money from them. So that's our problem. It's, it's, I don't want to paint too bleak a picture because the reality is, guess what, folks, they can't do it without us. So at the end of the day, you know, um, and they're finding it like nobody's gonna work for minimum wage if they don't have to. Um, and so finding workers who will work, you know, themselves into an early grave to fund a billionaire, uh, people get angry and people say no and they stop. And yay, yay, good for them when they do that.
2: Yeah, I look at things like um like you look at the, the I I'm I'm in Toronto right now. I live in uh the Madawaska Valley, just outside the Ottawa Valley there. And they, I, I came here and I was looking at prices of, and like, I was just looking at the menus and, uh, on, on restaurants. And I was just like, this is insane. I, I lived here in 2016 and easily they've doubled easily like for, 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 and I'm talking like, if, like, you know, a Thai lunch, like a takeout thing that used to be $8.95 is now $17, right? Yeah. And I'm just like, holy shit. And, and yeah. I don't really even blame the restaurant in a way because their landlords are charging them $7,000 a month just to have that little spot, right? Oh, yeah. Like, it's not a
1: small business issue. This is a big business issue. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we've all seen this. You go to the supermarket and, and the reality is prices have gone through the roof and wages have not. I mean, I saw one, you know, one little study that said that if our – Hourly wage is American, but said if the hourly rate wage had kept up with what CEOs in the C offices are making, um, the average the, the wage would be like $61 an hour. Like the yeah. minimum wage would be that. I mean, that's how the the spread has happened. Um, and that's how we've lost we've lost wage income and what it really buys. As they say, my parents could own a house in Toronto and a car on one income. Think about that. I mean, all those you know, 1950s leave it to beaver. You know all the women were at home well not all of them obviously but i mean you know you could do it on one salary that's inconceivable now sounds utopian when you talk about it now
0: yeah so i mean
1: this is you know this this is what i've seen in like one generation so um and it's simply politicians like rolling over for you know it's like donors you know big donors
2: (laughs) what would the political will look like legislatively
1: well it would look like okay so you're going to close your factory and um put you know a thousand people out of work and and move it to mexico great okay see ya um, we're keeping your factory and we're going to nationalize it and we're going to give it to the workers who are going to run it and guess wow. what it, some of those workers and, and, and think of any industry that you're in uh, honestly the workers that you know do all the work in that industry if you gave a few of them you know the, the the key to the to the CEO's office. I bet they could run it as just as effectively and a lot better than those CEOs. So that's what you do. You have political backbone. And 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 honestly, even without doing that, if you look at the Scandinavian com- countries, I mean, I went to Sweden when I was in politics. So there, the, McDonald's was unionized, 85 percent unionization rate there. Um, the average, we were fighting for ten dollars. The average hourly wage there was over twenty, and this was years back. Um, you know, it's a small country, nine, at that point it was about 9 million. Now it's probably about the same size as Ontario. And we can all think of huge, you know, Swedish companies, you know, Volvo, Ikea, Sony, you know, um, so for a very small, so somehow they make it work and they don't have homelessness. They didn't have poverty in our estimation at all. They had housing. They were building a hundred thousand units of affordable housing a year, um, wow. when I was over there, called it the Million House Program. So, so I mean, now sh- things have shifted a <laughs> now bit. Now we have Bucket of, Beer. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. Okay. I mean, the, the things are shifting in the Scandinavian countries too, unfortunately, in some ways. But the reality was like the things that, you know, is free, you know, you got paid to go to university. I mean, this is not utopian. This is what's happening in a lot of European countries. And we compare ourselves to the States. We forget there's a world out there that does things differently. So, um yeah, I would say i I spent a month in spain this this spring, and um it was just so refreshing to be in a place where there aren't you know where there's some sanity that runs things,
2: you know? yeah um is it a good time because i I learned something recently that i was I was sort of surprised at, but then it seemed obvious a lot of the people that have union jobs vote conservative now. And I was wondering, do you think it's a it's it's a good time to start pushing unions again? Because it would be really interesting, especially federally, to watch someone like Pierre Poirier, who all those truckers that he thinks he uh, mobilized to, to go to Ottawa—maybe he sort of did—um, a, a lot most of them are unionized plumbers and contractors, and, all, and they all tend to like not all, but a lot of them vote conservative. Do you think maybe it's a winning strategy for the left to start pushing union and ma- unions and making people like Pierre Proliev speak against them, even though a lot of his base are unionized workers?
1: Well, first of all, um, the convoy, when you look at who
2: was actually in it, a
1: lot of them were independent truckers. They weren't mm-hmm. unionized. Oh, that's right. Um, that's yeah. Right. But nonetheless. Fact, and, and bankrolled, are you kidding, by millionaires, like millions went into the convoy. Still, some of it's unaccounted for, as we, we hear these days. Um, I distracted so my own
2: question with the convoy thing but you know yeah, but still yeah, no, i no, think a lot of I hear, conservatives I hear, yeah.
1: I, I hear what you mean like but here's the problem and this is an educational problem right is that you know people say and I, and I hear from you know people who work in big oil and stuff you know well you know at their you know don't believe in climate crisis they're frightened for their jobs that's what's behind this and they think that by allying their interests With the, you know, with the billionaires and the developers or, you know, that that if you you side with them, the trickle down theory, you know, some of the money will come to you. This has been disproven. Every single generation doesn't work that way. What happens is that if you're first of all, you know, thank God they've got a union. But if you ally with the with the what we call the bosses with management, management has a completely different agenda than looking after you. Their agenda is to make profits for the shareholders is not to, to you know, put money in your pocket. So, I mean, this is, this is a problem. And it's a problem edu- of education. It's a problem of the left, actually, that we haven't done a good enough job of educating, you know, kind of the whole classic whose side are you on, you know, that we haven't talked to workers, that we haven't organized, that we've pretended to be liberals, that we haven't, you know, gone to our base and started to talking to, to, to folk exactly like that and said, you know, if you didn't have a union, you know, guess how much they'd be paying you? Number one, yeah. <laughs> half of what you get. And that has hit the trucking industry, by the way, hugely. You know, it really? used to be a very unionized industry. And now it's a lot of independent truckers barely keeping, you know, gas in the in the trucks. So so it's a problem. And, and in the oil fields, you think that this industry is going to go on forever? The big oil companies are even investing in renewables. So what you need to do is retrain in, in industries like that because there are lots of green jobs, you know, if the government was to invest in that, we put the billions that we put into oil subsidies into green jobs, those people could just segue from one to the other. Um, But you know this this is a problem, and and it's a problem that the right wing capitalizes on, as if you know the billionaires have your best interests. I mean, think about it for a minute. Everybody knows that's nonsense. <laughs> you know, you know, I have nothing oil. in common yeah. with Elon Musk, and he's not going to help me if I default on my mortgage. You know,
2: he did help <laughs> me get internet in the sticks. Well, I do have go. Starlink, and it and, and it works really well. And honestly, it was costing me three hundred dollars a month in internet before I got his thing. So you know. Oh, there you go. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm sorry that I put You'll my name. you have to share that right.
1: information, James, with how yeah. you did that.
2: Yeah, well, yeah. Well, uh, well <laughs> I can, it, it's easy, actually. Bell has decided. Bell is so criminal, okay? Like, I... I, I worse some can't. Rogers? I don't know. Yeah, they are, because they own the infrastructure. <laughs> and And the wow, infrastructure okay. that they have where I live um, there's the, all these like, uh, I don't know what they call them, like dark spots or something, where where there's no infrastructure there to give me high-speed internet. So you got to go through the cell tower, right? So I got to get this thing. And I, and I was doing that for like four years, going through the, or five years, going through the cell tower. They won't give you unlimited data, even though there's only like 800 people that live in my whole town. But they'll sell data in bulk to resellers who will then sell it to me and then they'll give me what they call unlimited data, but then they'll throttle the service. And it's just like, uh, so, the, yeah. you know, they're the reason why I had to go to Elon Musk to, <laughs> to go get my <laughs> internet, right?
1: But Well, yeah, good for you. I mean, that, and that's also a problem with the concentration. Of, you know, remember there used to be antitrust laws and things, remember those days? Yeah, um, barely. Uh, and, you know, yeah. now we now we have nothing but trusts, right? Like we have huge companies dominating fields with little or no competition.
2: Speaking of that, because I I knew I wanted to touch on this for a second. One of the most egregious things I ever learned was years ago when I found out, and it's not the same anymore, when Nestle, and I think you were in government at the time, when when Nestle was paying $3.71 for every million liters of water that the company pumped out of the ground. When I heard that, I know it's different now. I think I have it right in front of me. Uh now they pay 530 or sorry, $503 per million liters of water, which is an increase of 13,500%. But it's still nothing. Um why and where do deals get made like that? Uh, where did this briefcase open <laughs> to put in the face of whoever made this decision? Why why did that happen? Isn't it criminal? Like like do you know anything about that file? Because well, I, 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 I am so angry about that. I mean, yeah, well
1: and the other thing is of course they put them you know, you're basically what you could get out of your tap into a plastic bottle and then the plastic bottle has a lifespan beyond, you know, our entire race, you know? Uh, Yeah. So a major contributor to the climate crisis and the death of our oceans. Um, Well, it's, it's all, it is basically graft and corruption, you know, which is political, you know, um, which is, you know, you, you, you entice some, you know, small mayor in a small place and they think, Oh, you're getting all this money. And, and this is what comes out of it. You know, at the end, So I mean, it's maybe not into your pocket, but it's into getting you reelected and into your town's pocket. And it's of course never enough. It's 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 always a ripoff. So that's essentially what happens when those things happen. And the the other reality is the privatization of these of things like water. Like water should not be private. Um, You know, energy I think should not be private. I was just watching a, a, a you know documentary on the situation with, you know, the huge electricity company in California that caused all the fires and killed people, you know? Um, I mean, these it, it, the necessities of life should not be in private hands.
2: Mm-hmm. That's,
1: there's something very wrong with that.
2: Um, you mentioned earlier uh, that the liberals in the last election, or not the last election, but in the 2015 election sort of outflanked the NDP and appealed to a lot of left-wing voters
0: mm-hmm. where
2: he, he's disappointed me. Um, as a prime minister, uh, you know, I, I don't have any, I try not to have any ill will for, for people that I think are probably good people, but they, they make political decisions sometimes that just blows my mind. Where do you think Trudeau has kind of dropped the ball since he became prime minister?
1: Well, um, because the way all liberals do, I mean, you know, they run to the left and then they basically, um, tend to sell out. Um, so, you know, we saw in Ontario, Kathleen Wynne, you know, privatizing Hydro. Um, you see see him, you know, with various scandals, you know, going back. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's, it's kind of the old graft and corruption game. I mean, there's, we used to have a joke at Queen's Park about, you know, the, go- the then liberal government. And, you know, um, one of my benchmates said, you know, Every day is like every other day, it's all graft and corruption and it's a good day when somebody doesn't get whacked. And at which point my, ben- <laughs> my bench my benchmate, Peter Tabins, who's a great guy, said said to me, well, actually, when I was a city councilor, somebody did actually get killed in the underground parking lot or something at <laughs> city hall. You know, I mean, so I mean, this is what it's about. I mean, money just kind of goes out, um, and um, and that's and that's sad. And I want to be nonpartisan about it because you know I'm not a big fan of the Horgan government at all. Um, and you know, it, the problem is that's this is what tends to happen, and that's sad, and that's um, what's you know going to Kill our planet unless we get our acts together and do something about it. Because, because money, you know, money does talk in politics. Um,
2: and yeah. Yeah. He kind of, to me, he kind of I, like, I, I don't even know. I feel like the outflanking of the, of the NDP was was completely artificial because it felt like he was placating the left on issues that really, there was no heavy lifting involved. And a lot of it seemed to be like lip service to social issues, but not like it wasn't like um, affordable housing. It was like pronouns and stuff. Like like he, he didn't. Well, no, you know, what
1: he said. I mean, what he did. Like think about some of the promises that he made. He promised to get rid of the first pass post system.
2: Oh, that was. He the promised.
1: Worst. You know, he yeah. promised that we would have a true democracy, which would really help us in this country, um, so that your vote actually counted. Um, and then he promised Pharmacare. Where's Where's either of those things promised? He said. You know, these are. You know, this is like. This is constantly what liberals do Tories do like yeah i mean it's not just one party that does this but but the sad reality is that um you know when i when i look at ontario politics um which i know kind of more intimately i can say that uh i often use the example of mike harris who i think almost completely destroyed this province in many ways but he did what he said he was going to do you know, and and this is horrifying. So, so what do you want? So you've got, you know, um, you've got, yeah, um, the liberals with, you know, we've got principles. And if you don't like them, we've got some others. And then you've got conservatives who, who want to privatize everything and, you know, and give every you know, like drop taxes on the billionaires. And then they do, right? So, um, mm-hmm. and then you have the NDP that, that, you know, isn't, putting forward, uh, you know, I mean, I think the deal federally with the NDP was, was terrible. I think we should have got way more for our support for the liberals than what we got. Um, and um, so there you go. So it, unless we really develop a backbone, somebody somewhere, please, um, <laughs> we're, we're going to be Tweedledum and Tweedledumber. Now those will be our choices.
2: I, I'm not trying to get you to throw anyone under the bus or anything, but do you think Andrea Horvath overstayed her leadership life
1: um well to, to be fair um you know she worked hard and she you know quadrupled the caucus from when i was first elected um but um yeah I well think so that did the uh, last... kathleen
2: Wynn had a lot to do with that i think
1: yeah i mean i <laughs> yeah. i think uh, you know it should have been government should have been government the last election, and I think we could have been government. So I'll leave it at that. You know, um, absolutely. I mean, I and again, I think that the major problem was we were just trying way too hard to be liberals.
2: Any chance that you might be throwing your hat back in the ring?
1: No, none whatsoever. Although I am you, uh, actively yeah. supporting Marit Stiles, so <laughs> yeah. and I've made no bones about that. So I think she'll be all but acclaimed pretty soon because you have to register, I think, by December. So um but that's going to be a good move and then we just need a good chief of staff um and uh yeah i i'm I'm all about people with principles in politics and i nobody wants a one-party state you know we Mm -hmm. act like we do but we don't um we really do so i i i much prefer a principled person from another party than a careerist in my own so give you know give me somebody you can actually talk to that actually has an opinion that's actually there for a reason and not just themselves and uh, then you can actually get something done.
2: So no uh, politics. So drug dealing, perhaps?
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> that'd long gone. no, that'd be kind of crazy. No, I'm going to be are like a reason. priest, I and you're like giving communion, and all the, and, the best. and every fifth
2: communion is LSD. That'd be kind of fun. <laughs> I
1: got I, I got the best job in the world, you know. Um, so yeah, um, no, but I mean, I wish them I wish them all well. Um, uh, I, I think that. uh, you know, there's one thing I learned in politics is people don't go in it that for the money because you, most of them are lawyers, could probably make do better somewhere else. Mm. And people don't, you know, um, and aren't lazy. Uh, you know, nobody works harder than politicians if they're working at all. Um, so there's that. But yeah, what we really do, would love from them is, you know, honesty and and actually standing up for a principle. And I think that's that makes a good debate and that makes think, a good a government if you've got, and again, if we didn't have first pass the post, but we had to, we built in more negotiation, more forced negotiation. I think we'd, we'd get better laws.
2: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, happy that you're happy where you are in life. <laughs> um, I think that you would be a great candidate, but I totally understand why you wouldn't want to get into that arena right now. And uh, your book is called the queer evangelist. And Sherry, it was awesome to talk to you. I hope you come back.
1: Always fun and always good okay. Take care, James. Thank you very much. Have a good one.
2: You too. Sherry Genovo, she's amazing. She's awesome. Um, yeah, she was my Parkdale MP, and uh, you know, I'm really thankful that she spent some time tonight because uh, she makes a lot of sense. You know, like I, I, we didn't really get into the nitty gritty of uh, of of issues all that much, but I, you know, I'm uh, I'm sure that we disagree on a bunch and, and agree on a bunch, but she makes a lot of sense, and um, she's ballsy, and she's you know all these things, so. Um, I really appreciate her coming on the show today. I think I'm taking tomorrow off and, uh, yeah. So we'll probably see you on Monday on black ball. Thanks for it. Black ball. Black black black
1: black, 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 black.
2: everywhere the imagination dares it's for the open-minded the pleasure seeker it's jeff woods with the new podcast about relationships and sexuality theme-based with special guests blue hotel hotline And every episode climaxes with an adult bedtime story get a room and listen in at the blue hotel Begins Friday, September 23rd. I'm Matt Cundell, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast.